Here we are now with another series for the Andrew Lake Podcast. If you are a regular listener of the Andrew Lake Podcast, please share your favourite episode or perhaps share your favourite series as this will help you help me find my audience and it will help you share what you've been finding for yourself. It will help to find the people who are ready to hear what we are experiencing here, what we are sharing here, what we are talking about here. And this is the first episode in a five-part series. And this series is called Mainstreaming Enlightenment. And we're going to look at this thing, this little thing called enlightenment. Oh boy, are we really going to do that? I don't know how I feel about that. And also, we're going to look at this little thing called the mainstream, popular culture. Oh boy, I've got adamant feelings about that as well. Why would it be that these two things have to come together? Could they even come together? Do they ever even have a chance of coming together? Is it even a possibility? And each episode in this series, what we're actually going to do is take a little look at something small, something curious, and how it implies enlightenment. And it would be, in some ways, the most unsuspecting result that you might have, the most unexpected reaction you might have to this little thing. And also quite curious that it's in plain view, it's in the mainstream, it is so common, it is so mundane in a sense. So that's a little bit about what we're talking about. And there's a lot to this. There's a lot I want to take us through. And keep in mind that enlightenment is one thing and mainstream culture is another. Now, at this stage, we have different ideas about what those two things mean and how they relate to each other. And this really is the core of this series. It's really the thesis, which is how does enlightenment interact with the mainstream as a phenomenon, as a phenomenon of the human condition and vice versa? How does the mainstream interact with enlightenment? And we're going to look at commercialism. We're going to talk, we're going to look at commercialism. We're going to talk about the success meme, we're going to talk about business, we're going to talk about marketing and advertising and all those things that, well, if you're at least a little bit awake or a little bit hip to how life works, you might find them as a bit distasteful, a little bit, well, if not distasteful, not very interesting. And that's just where you're at, if that's where you're at. And I hope that changes because always, as always, we're looking to complexify our understanding. We're looking to broaden our knowledge. We're looking to expand what it is that we think about certain things that we have as experiences in relation to certain things. And the mainstream popular culture is just one of those things that we're dealing with here. And the other one is, well, enlightenment and It's a bit of a question that is sort of like that question, well, do we have free will? If you're at a certain point in your spiritual path, you sort of roll your eyes and say, huh, tell me another one. Isn't that an old classic? It's sort of of the question you laugh at, like, what is enlightenment? It's almost become sort of like a, a joke that you tell in the pub, you know, like you're in the pub with your friends and you're having a yarn and... And you say, well, a mystic walks into the cave and says, what is enlightenment? 
and you think, well, okay, this is like a setup of a joke. This is a punchline of a joke, like two priests and a lawyer walked into a bar. What's what's the punchline? What's coming? I'm going to be laughing in a few seconds, the next thing that you say. And it is a joke in a very profound way, in fact. Enlightenment is a joke. It's a cosmic joke. And that's one spin on it. It's also a religion. It's also a phenomenon of the human condition which has many ancient implications to it, many long histories and traditions to it. And if you sort of have been around this game for a little bit and maybe you've studied Advaita Vedanta or some Buddhist principles or some meditative practices, then you can understand this. And there's a few sort of stock standard things that go along with what it means to have that sort of spiritual enlightenment. Things like, well, non-dual experiencing and non-dual philosophy. Also, non-location experiencing. And then there's also ego death or transcending the ego or losing your ego. I'm sure you've heard conversations about that before. And also final liberation or the great liberation or total freedom. That's a phrase that is often associated with enlightenment. And also coming out of bondage is closely related to that. And also the collapse of self and other, the collapse of boundaries, boundary disillusion. This is closely related to ego death, or is just in some ways another way of talking about ego death. And then there's also expansive feelings. There's also expansive sensing, expansive sensory perceptions, seeing more, hearing more, tasting more. And then there's also, perhaps most broadly, expansive experiencing, cosmic experiencing, astro-projecting, soul disillusion. These sorts of things. And these are sort of now, I hope to you, sort of textbooks, textbook kinds of word associations that surround enlightenment. And of course, we can also ask, well, is, is enlightenment lasting or not? We can put a metric of time onto it and say, well, are we talking about enlightenment as a peak experience or are we talking about enlightenment as a permanent structure? or a default mode network of your brain, of your synaptic firings in your neurons? Is it a also a psychological structure, or a structure that is also even experiential? So it's a permanent state, your average state of being. And we can play between those two things. There's a lot of dynamics between those two things, because a peak and a structure... Uh, things that have a relation to them. They're actually related and they interact between each other. So you still have highs and you still have lows. And actually, one of the ways of getting into the understanding of enlightenment is understanding permanence and impermanence. That's a Buddhist principle. That's a Buddhist term. Anicca, 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 we hear S.N. Goenka say. And if you're doing state training and you're actually meditating and maybe you're experimenting with certain substances or you're doing certain modern practices or awareness intensives in order to get peak experiences, well, then chances are you have some sort of idea of why you're trying to get these peak experiences and how you're wanting to translate them into certain things. And of course, at a certain point in the spiritual path, we all... We all have this thing. I mean, I think I think it's just about essential to have this thing where we first discover enlightenment as an idea, as a concept. And it becomes this big thing. It's like, wow, I really want to pursue 
enlightenment. I want to get enlightenment this lifetime. I'm going to do everything I can. This is the most important thing. I'm going to align it as my true north. And that's important. I think going through that and having that enthusiasm and having that as part of the story is very important. And really, if this is your first time hearing about enlightenment, then, well, you need to understand that this is probably what might happen to you. And it's a good thing. There is a a really... There's a wealth of lessons. It's not just one lesson. It's a wealth of lessons that comes from discovering enlightenment and then pursuing it wholeheartedly, even though it's it's sort of with that kind of the young person's enthusiasm, that first-timer's enthusiasm, first-timer's luck, we might call it. So if that's where you're at, definitely get excited, definitely get involved. And if you're a little bit further on, and maybe you're a little bit fed up with how many different theories of enlightenment you've heard, and how many different things you've tried and failed to achieve in pursuing enlightenment, (laughs) then you can still listen along because there are more metrics to learn. There are more dynamics to learn. And that's exactly what we're doing in this series. We're actually taking a very, very far out metric, a very far out link, a sort of quite an obscure and eccentric connection. And we're going to discuss all of the dynamics and the implications between them, which is this interaction between or this relation between the mainstream and enlightenment, popular culture and enlightenment. Now, we see this as a growing thing in our current information era, which is how do you make connections between things? So if I can say a little bit now about what it is that we're actually doing and why it's important, we are seeing that we have so much information and so many cross-cultural interactions between all different parts of the world, all different walks of life, all around the globe, that there's this new thing opening up, which is how do you make sense of it all? How do you actually put these two things together? And sometimes you see two things put together, which is quite jarring. It's quite Shocking. And that's actually part of what we're talking about in this series. It's this thing, enlightenment, which is traditionally sacred, profound, religious, to do with core values of the human condition. And we see that right smack up bang against some shitty, low life, quick profit product that is just there for a quick dollar, that is there to just appeal to your lowest needs. And we have these two things right next to each other. They're right there. And how do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of these extravagantly different things right up next to each other in a supposed kind of disgusting contradiction? And that's really the question that we're answering. That's really what we're discussing. And that's something you'll see as a skill in all people that are talking. Everyone that talks and tries to explain something is trying to resolve contradictions. They're trying to make things work together that in so many ways at face value or on first impression look like they shouldn't be together. And often there's a quite quite a tone of dismay. There's a sort of unsettling outrage. And this is where outrage comes from, really. It's having these contradictions put into your face. It's like, well, we've taken one part of your culture and another part, and we've put those two things together. And you've said, no, those two things can't go together. This is sacred. This is untouchable. 
And of course, this is an under, a misunderstanding of the relationship between the profound and the profane. And this is one of our core things that we talk about, the interaction between the profound and the p- profane. I mean, it wouldn't work if we were to sit here and discuss only the profound. If we were to only be in that spiritual, if we were only really trying to have purity, if we were only trying to make things as sacred as possible without embracing the prof- the the profanities, the disgust, the dark side, the dismay, the chaos, then, well, then that would only be a partial way of understanding the world. And you do see this. You do see this in other places. We're taking every step here to make sure that doesn't happen to this discussion. But in other places, you do see worldviews that are partial that simply don't make sense of the contradictions. They have other methods of either explaining away other parts or even denying completely that they exist or that they even have any sort of importance, if not that they don't exist at all. So get a sense of, get a sense of really being able to see things in a multitude of ways. And when you really start to understand the fluidity and you can see things through and through, then you can actually start to get something good out of those bad things. And this is one of the things of truth. This is one of the things of seeing, which is that you need to be able to transmute darkness into light. You need to be able to see an untruth, recognize it as an untruth, and then reshift it into a truth. And this is very subtle. This is very detailed. And this has so many traps, so many tricks on every side of it. And another thing to understand is that the more subtle and the more nuanced we become, the more traps and problems there are that could occur, the more likely it is that something could go wrong. The more complex something is, then, well, the more tricky it is and the more chances it are there are of there being mistakes. And in the case of mainstream and enlightenment, well, In a sense, we're talking about the most complex and most nuanced thing, which is enlightenment, and the most gross and the most obvious thing, which is the mainstream. The mainstream is not trying to explain something in detail to you. Advertising does not appeal to your ability to cognize things in a more detailed way. The mainstream is not trying to actually make you have a more complex worldview. Mainstream advertising and mainstream in general is just how do we get the most simple, most high-impact thing into your face as quickly as possible so that you can buy the product, so that it can have an effect on you. And quite frankly, this is driven by profit. It's driven by consuming. It's consumerism. This is the age we're in. We're going to live and die in the age of consumerism. That's just where the culture is at at the moment. And yet on the other side, we've got enlightenment, which is, well, how do we go into histories? We talk about religions. We talk about obscure mystical figures and spiritual gurus. And how do we make fine distinctions between our definitions? How do we label different experiences and phenomenological happenings? How do we talk about methods and subtle detailed practices, meditative practices? How do we actually explain it in a way which is going to bring you in gradually so it's not all overwhelming at once? Like, whoa, whoa, slow down, too complex, you've lost me. You lost me at meditation. You lost me at awareness techniques. Or you lost me at phenomenological experiencing in relation to transcendental existentialism. 
And these are the two things we're working with in this series, mainstream and enlightenment. Now, to make things simple and to make things clear, I'd like us to work with two simple definitions of enlightenment. And for the purposes of these discussions, we're going to use these two definitions to kind of simply put aside the whole traditional understanding of enlightenment. So we're not going to really talk much about Buddhism or Advaita Vedanta or Taoism. Those sorts of theories of enlightenment, we're going to stay away from those and we're just going to work with something simple so that we can navigate around the dynamics of enlightenment and the mainstream. And really, it is something quite good to have a simple understanding. It is quite good in some ways to summarize. And of course, I would still recommend that you go and learn from the world religions. You learn from the world traditions and you learn the practices and you learn the theories and the stories and all of that. That's not something you can get out of. But for the purposes of these next few days, these next few conversations that we have in this series, I'd like us to just have two simple definitions of enlightenment. So, two simple definitions of enlightenment. Number one, enlightenment is to become light. Enlightenment is to become light. And I mean light as in not heavy. So enlightenment is to become not heavy. And this means, quite simply, what the words imply. means that enlightenment is to let go of weight. Enlightenment is to drop what you are carrying. Enlightenment is to see what weighs you down. Enlightenment is to lose your tangles, to lose your confusion. And there's a correlation between this as a theory and actually getting a sense of it in your physical body. And actually one of the techniques that you can do to understand enlightenment is to put your physical body under a weight and then take it off and notice that difference. That moment when the weight comes off. It might be that you've put on a really big coat and we've filled your pockets with stones. And you've got all these pockets and we even sew up extra pockets. And there are more and more stones. We gradually put them in over and over. And you don't even notice it. That's the trick. You don't even know that it's there. And it's weighing you down heavier and heavier. And then someone comes along and takes off the coat and, ah, you feel light again. And furthermore, to take that a little bit further, enlightenment is to have a floating sensation. It's to have a kind of spring in your step. The spring in your step is towards enlightenment. When you have a spring in your step, you're having a little taste of enlightenment. And enlightenment is a kind of effortlessness. It's a kind of freeing up of the efforts you put in and what you get out. And furthermore, to take the floating even further, to become light, as in not heavy, ultimately means to fly. 
It means to be able to fly. And that's our first simple definition of enlightenment, which is to become light, to become not heavy. And as for the second definition, simple definition of enlightenment, which I'm sure you can guess at this stage what it is. Enlightenment is to become light. This is our second simple definition. Enlightenment is to become light. And I mean this as to become light as in not dark. Enlightenment is to become not dark. Now, even in just that, don't be so dark. I'm sure you've got lots of ideas of what that means. I'm sure you can think of all the implications of what it means to be not dark. Have you been dark before? Do you know what you're like when you're dark, when you're being dark, when you're feeling dark? What sort of facial expression do you have? What's the mood like? What sort of behaviors do you do? What kind of words do you say? How does your tone of voice go? As for a few ideas, to become not dark is to see things with clarity. To see things as simple as day. To see things in light, in the light. I have seen the light. You see that phrase? You hear that phrase in the gospel churches? I have seen the light, says the preacher. I have seen the light. Well, that's exactly what they're talking about. To become not dark is to come into light. And this means, well, an understanding, a clarity, a kind of constant day. There's no need for drama. There's no need for darkness. And also, in a way, you can actually see in the dark. When you become light, you can see in the dark. Take that as an, take that as an example, a kind of metaphorical example of what it means to become enlightened. You can actually see things in the dark. And darkness, in a sort of general sense of the meaning, night and day, is for rest. So you rest in the dark when it's night time. Well, depending on who you are, of course. But generally speaking, humans go to sleep when it's night time. And that's the time for rest. And so to become light, in another way, is to say that, well, you don't really need rest. And this ties in with meditative practices that if you do enough will allow you to remain conscious during sleep. Many enlightened masters and gurus and teachers and advanced practitioners of meditation actually report being able to stay conscious while their body sleeps. And that is a kind of light in the dark. And of course, there's also, a, there's also scientific research into that. That's, that's where you get into different brainwave patterns and different neurological readings. And you've got your EEG machine readings and those sorts of things. But we don't need to go into that to really understand the principle, which is that enlightenment is to become light. And ultimately, when you become more light, you become the sun itself. And you actually shine outwards. And that's a kind of metaphorical way of saying that you give to the world, you share with the world. You're a benevolent force of good to the world. You help others. And when you really transcend all the way to become light, well, then you're just shining constantly. 
You are both the light and you're the source of light as well. And both these simple definitions may have a way of converging. Because you remember that to become light as in not heavy means to float and to fly. So when you fly, when you fly up from the earth, well, where do you go? You actually go to the sun. You go towards the sun. And as you get closer to the sun, well, you get more light. And then, of course, your wings burn and you die. (laughs) But as a spirit, as a soul, we can say, you fly up from the earth towards the sun and you become light. And actually the image of flying around the stars, the image of being able to traverse the whole universe, to go to distant galaxies, to see thousands of suns, to visit planets, to tell stories of moons, to be able to go all over, everywhere, and to have that kind of astronomical freedom, well, that is an image of enlightenment. That is an image of freedom. That is an image of transcendence that should be well understood. So keep those definitions in mind and keep the image of flying amongst amongst the stars in mind. And really, it should be should be one of your skills. The ability to fly amongst the stars should be one of the things you want to have as a skill. And it's sort of it's sort of another way of saying you you have the skill of enlightenment. Enlightenment as a as a kind of hobby. I don't want to say hobby because it's usually central. It's really something that needs to be central. But this is something we'll have to review again and again because there's a lot to it. And if it doesn't make quite sense right now, just understand that, well, the things that we do and things that we work on in relation to enlightenment are partly the ability to fly amongst the stars. And we'll see exactly what that means as we discuss it more and as we really get into these details. So that's our introduction for the series. That's what we've got in the next few episodes. This will be a five-part series. So each episode we're going to discuss one example of how enlightenment went mainstream. That time enlightenment went mainstream and perhaps probably further or before we actually get into today's into today's example we should say there is there is this curious thing about knowing that if you don't know then you can't know and when you do know you really do know And the point of that is that you can't learn something from these things. So it's not as though these cultural examples that we're discussing imply what we are concluding from them. Not at all. It's more a matter of what do you get out of the things that are in front of your face? What do you get out of life? What do you get out of life? What do you get out of the things that are happening to you? How much do you get out of it? And if I can explain, well, this is my theory, how some mainstream thing has triggered this enlightenment moment or this insight or this realization for me, 
I figure that maybe you can start to see how that can happen for you. But really, fundamentally, these things were not designed to have the implications that we're getting from them. So you could say, how on earth can you have this big, long discussion, this big, long commentary on something so small, something so simple, which wasn't even intended to have that implication? And the answer to that is, well, what do you get out of life? The answer is, what kind of impression are things making on you? And you can't know, well, the juice of it, unless you already know. And if you know, then you do know. And if you don't know, well, in a sense, you can't know. You can't know how you get this out of this, how something comes out of something else, how something can imply so much. So that's another thing to keep in mind. And I'll come back to that again. Many of the things that we're discussing here we will again discuss in different ways as we move forward. And I'll repeat myself again, because sometimes repetition is needed and sometimes we're quite dense. So, without further ado, today's example, today I'd like to talk about Himalayan carpet cleaning. <laughs> My goodness, when I saw this, I, I just couldn't believe it. I I could not believe it. Himalayan carpet cleaning. This was on the side of a van. I was driving my car and I stopped at the lights and I saw a van drive past and it said Himalayan carpet cleaning. And I just, I was gobsmacked. I thought, my God, that's it. It was one of those moments that just... <laughs> my goodness, I couldn't believe I, I was speechless. I was literally speechless. I had no idea what to say. It was so unexpected. And of course, I've since contemplated it. So like, how do we, okay, how do, how do I explain myself? Have I gone off my nut? Have I gone off my rockers? Well, maybe that's part of this, but <laughs> let me explain the story. Let me explain what's happening there. This is mainstream mainstreaming enlightenment this is enlightenment gone mainstream because okay well let's back up a little bit in in australia there's this thing of the small business right and if you save up a few thousand dollars maybe five thousand dollars ten thousand dollars with your job what you can do is you can buy a van and then you buy this really good carpet shampooing machine and then you put this sign on the side of the van that says Himalayan carpet cleaning and a phone number. And then people call the phone number and say, can you come and clean my carpet? And you say, yes, you go clean it. They give you some money. And then maybe you've got a loan for your van and your carpet cleaning machine and you've got some ongoing expenses. And you also start doing the booking and the finances and the accounting and these sorts of things. And then you also do some more advertising so more people see the phone number. And then maybe you get someone to help you because you've got, you know, lots of people calling you to clean their carpets. And you've got a business. That's it. That's business 101. It's simple business. Easy business. Now, one of the things in that business is how do you make a brand? Why do you, how do you call the carpet cleaning business something that will stick in people's mind? something that people will remember, something people will talk about. See, now you're starting to see the trickery of Himalayan carpet cleaning, right? Because if you can come up with some really clever and in some ways grandiose name for your business, well, people will remember it. People will think, well, I need my carpet cleaned, so who am I going to call? Oh, what was the name of that other one? I can't remember, but I remember Himalayan carpet cleaning. 
And this is, well, this is the genius. Well, how do we take this as far as possible? Let's, let's, let's just imagine the person who's starting that business. They've got this idea, right? How do we have the most grandiose, the most powerful? All right, all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a, here's, yes, yes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a carpet cleaning business and it's going to be the biggest thing in the world. Hmm. Okay. What's, what's the biggest thing in the world, Bob? Hey, Bob. What's the biggest thing in the world? Oh, I don't know, Jerry. It's got to be it's got to be the Himalayan mountains, right? Ah, Bob, that's genius. Genius, Bob. I'm going to call this the Himalayan carpet cleaning. <laughs> Do you think that's how the conversation went? Do you think that's how they came up with that idea? Do you think that's what happened? I don't know. I like to laugh at that kind of conversation. I like to laugh at that kind of idea. And it's a very small bit. I mean, I don't know anything about the actual Himalayan carpet cleaning business, and I do not endorse them. This is not a, <laughs> this is not some sort of stealth affiliate marketing at all. I don't know anything about them. I've never had my carpet cleaned. Mind you, I probably do need my carpet cleaned. It's a bit of a, it's not a very nice place, but too much personal information. Let's stay on topic. Now, we take this back and we have these things that we understand now about an ABC carpet cleaning business and how mundane it is. There must be dozens of carpet cleaning businesses in Australia and it really is a basic sort of business. But we take this back now to really the most profound thing, the most really quite amazing thing. And really, now we, now we have to do the work. Now we have to traverse out of this. This is where the road starts, which is that you need to realize and re-get in touch with the profundity of the Himalayan mountains. Now, I have never been to the Himalayan mountains, but I have heard stories. I have heard many things said about them. And there is a mystical tradition surrounding those mountains. Some mystics say that monks go there to meditate for deep grounding for deep energetic work. And there's an energetic field there which is unlike anything else in the world. And if you want to have very profound shifts in your meditative practice, then, well, you go to the Himalayan mountains. That's why so many monks are drawn there of all sorts of traditions. And this depending on how you conceptualize energy and what it means, means that there is something unique about the Himalayan mountains. Or I should say, there is something very powerful about them, which is beyond just that they're very big mountains. And being in touch with something, being in touch with something so so large and so old, being in touch with something so profound, really is one of the keys to actually opening to the profound of existence. Because we can say, we can say, okay, so you need to open to the profundity of existence. You need to open to the magic of life. And you say, well, how do I do that? There's so much mess in life. Well, there's so much suffering in life. Well, there's so much that I'm not interested in. And then you can say, well, is there anything that is interesting? Is there at least something, if not everything, then something, some of the things that you like or that you're interested in or that you have a sense of the profound from? And you can list off a whole bunch of things and we can work from there. But also, I can suggest something to you, and I can say, well, I suggest to you that the Himalayans is profound. I suggest to you that the Himalayans is something of meaning, something that can put 
a real deep reverence back in your life. And even just understanding the largest mountains in the world, the biggest mountains in the world, even just contemplating that can bring you something without even going there. The largest of anything in the world, the largest mountain in the world, in this case, as something to contemplate, is a method, is a way into the profound. And it's quite funny now that, well, if you go to certain... (laughs) I went to India, and in certain cities, it seemed like... Everything was labelled Himalayan. So you had Himalayan salt, you had Himalayan carpet, Himalayan you know, it wasn't just the it wasn't just that the carpet cleaning was Himalayan carpet cleaning, it was everything was Himalayan. Everything that was being sold, Himalayan toothpicks, Himalayan accounting, Himalayan taxis, and so on and so on and so on. And well what's happening there? is that the commercialism, the mainstream, the consumerism, the profiteering, is seeing the essence, at least in a subconscious way, of the Himalayans. It's seeing the profound essence of the Himalayans and saying, how can we harness that? How can we use some of that? How can we use the reputation? It's almost like a kind of plagiarism. It's, we're, we're plagiarizing the Himalayans. That carpet cleaning business is actually plagiarizing the Himalayans. They're actually ripping off their branding. They're ripping off their good name. So if the, if the Himalayans was a business or a corporation or a company, they would actually have to sue the carpet cleaning business or they'd have to franchise it or it would be a franchise. And you'd actually send money to the Himalayas. Imagine that. Imagine that. And actually, you know what? I I wager, now I don't know this, but I wager that there is a company named the Himalayan whatevers. And maybe there is a franchise, a kind of franchise or a branding. Now, branding and franchising, we don't need to get into those different nuances there. But I bet you there is. There is something registered under the name Himalayas. And isn't it so amazing that that has just got nothing to do with the real profundity, the real essence of the Himalayas themselves. And that's a theme that will come up again and again as we keep discussing these things. This really is the essence of what we're trying to understand, which is the relationship between the mainstream and enlightenment. And I'm sure there is more that will come to mind, even as we keep discussing. I'm sure there are more examples that you can think of. But as we go through them, as we see, then just keep in mind that this is a difference This is a dynamic which is complex, which has lots of ins and outs to it. And it's very hard to say that there's one real key insight. There's no one trick fits all. There's no one simple statement that we can thread through everything. Because it's multidimensional. It's multifunctional. It's adaptive. Our minds are adaptive. We're trying to make malleable minds, malleable ways of thinking and for the better for the chance for the skill for the joy of being able to laugh at Himalayan carpet cleaning and yet also to know that there is a deep reverence in the Himalayas themselves so that will be Just about enough for today. Please do listen on to the next few episodes because they'll tie in together. And I don't know what else 
really we can add to the Himalayan carpet cleaning. But it is quite funny. I still laugh at it. I sort of I sort of feel a bit ripped off, you know, if the if the carpet cleaning man, I, you know, imagine imagine I do this. I get this carpet cleaner guy to come in and he just I mean, what is he going to do? He's just going to clean the carpet, right? It's just going to be shampoo, carpet, here's your bill. Thank you. See you later. Oh, the carpet looks nice. Now, imagine if I was really holding him to his brand. I said, now, oh, oh, him. Well, look here, big man, Himalayan carpet cleaning. I said, what? You call this a Himalayan job? This isn't a Himalayan job. I'm not paying this. <laughs> how? I mean, how could you hold this to I mean, I mean, this is a this is a very funny thing, and I'm sure people have made fun of these things. Which is what? What if you actually hold the brands to? I mean, branding is so branding and marketing is so grandiose in so many ways that it that it's impossible to actually hold them to it. Maybe this is something will come up in our other examples, and maybe this is one of the things that is simply just understood but never said about mainstream society, which is that it, it's just fake. It's got this sort of air of tastelessness to it. It's got this air of being so over the top, like, wow, it's this most, the most incredible thing. If you get your carpet cleaned by the Himalayan carpet cleaning, wow, this is going to be the most amazing, like that, that kind of you know, blah, 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 that kind of so over the top. And yet we all know it's fake, at least subconsciously. We all know that there's something tasteless about it. And it's left unsaid. It's left as just accepted as how the mainstream is. So let's wrap it up. Let's leave this about there. This has been episode number one in our series, Mainstreaming Enlightenment. And we talk about Himalayan carpet cleaning. So we'll be back very soon with episode number two. Thanks very much for tuning in. And that's all I have to say for now.